0: Let's pray together. Our great God, we indeed need you this morning to give us wisdom and discernment. We need your Spirit to come and to speak over our prejudices and our opinions. And we need you to so speak into our hearts that we might draw convictions that glorify you and live with others with differing opinions in such a way that the gospel of Jesus Christ is promoted and upheld and lifted high. So, Lord God, would you come in a mighty way by your Spirit right here in this place, remove all the distractions, and give me mercy and grace and strength to be able to clearly speak the truth that you clearly set out in these verses. God, we need you. I need you. So come now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A couple of weeks ago, I um, walked into Bluff City Coffee over here on South Main. And as soon as I walked in, I noticed a guy had come into the coffee shop with his 27-inch iMac desktop computer. Um, It was really hard to miss. He had it set up on the table. And I think everybody that walked in kind of gave him that look like, dude, really? And I kind of gave that look, but he obviously didn't care. But I I came in and I sat behind him because I had to just get a a, a picture of what in the world he needed a 27-inch monitor um, for uh, just for a couple of hours' work in a coffee shop. And as I sat beside him, it, it became clear why. He was photoshopping an image that was obviously going to go in a magazine or some publication. And it was a woman about 30 years of age, fairly attractive lady, dressed very conservatively with a v-neck tasteful dress on. And um, yet he was going in and he would blow up one part of her face and he would, he would erase a, a, an age mark or, or a, a freckle. And then he would move to another part of her, her face and he would erase a little bit more. And I could tell that it was it, he would be staring at it for several minutes. It was painstakingly, uh, this, this painstaking process for him, I could tell. Because I knew that he didn't want to erase too much so she wouldn't look, you know, non-human or non-real. But then I noticed that he he went to her chest and he kind of blew up this this part of the V-neck. And there were two hairs. You wouldn't have noticed it unless he had brought it into this massive screen that he had. And there were two hairs that fell from her head and and rested about right here. and, And he took his cursor and he just went over it and erased it and zip, it was gone. And as I watched him do this process and I came in the coffee shop to begin studying this passage, it hit me. That's exactly what we want to do in the church. And it's really what we've done. We want to be able to Photoshop our community. We want to be able to to tell God and the church who we're willing to associate with and to live in community with. We don't want God to choose for us, but we want to tell God, these are the kinds of people that I'm willing to go to church with, and they're typically people that believe what we believe. And yet Paul comes to us in chapter 14 and 15 and he says, don't do that. And that sounds like something the Bible would say. Get along, okay. But, he, but the way he does it and the content or the directives that he gives and how to do it is what really stands out to me in this passage. If we go back to verses uh, 5 and 6 in chapter 14, verses that Chris dealt with a couple of weeks ago, we read this. One person esteems one day as better than another while another esteems all days alike. And then he says this, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. This is radical. This isn't just saying, hey guys, y'all go along. Y'all go and just learn how to get along. It's no, you go away and you stand before God and you come to a conclusion about your convictions when it comes to non-essentials about the gospel. Whether this day is more important than this day, whether we should fast on this day or not fast on that day, whether we should eat this or not eat that, or whether we should drink this or not drink that, you go and you decide what your conviction should be before God, and then you come together, you do life together, and you don't impose your convictions about those things on anybody around you. It's radical. It's radical because what he's saying is show the world the power of the gospel to be a community that is not centered on the petty but instead on the profound work of Jesus Christ. And if we look at the church today and we look at the church over the last decades, what we see is we have come together and united over the petty and in so doing kick the gospel and kick the big work of Jesus to the curb. Instead of coming together and celebrating Jesus and getting along around him, we come together and we said, well, okay, we're this brand of Christians. We do this, we dress like this, we have this style of music. We drink this, we don't drink that. We do all these little rules that we come up with, non-essential rules, and we say, now we are the church that you really ought to be coming to. And Paul says, no, don't do that. Why? Because of everything He said for the first 11 chapters of Romans. (laughs) I mean, we marched through the first 11 chapters of Romans and what we saw was that Jesus is huge. We saw that He is so worthy of worship because of the great salvation of grace that He has worked in the lives of His people that it and it alone should overshadow our petty little convictions. And we ought to be able to love each other in such a way that the world stands back and goes, look at how those people love one another even though they don't agree on every little thing. But the church today, or excuse me, the world today stands back at the church and says just the opposite. If they can't get along, why should we listen to the message that they preach? And so, friends, it may seem like a very small thing eating meat, Drinking alcohol, not eating this meat, not drinking alcohol, taking this day as more holy than another day, not taking that day as more holy than another day. And Paul says, this is where the rubber meets the road. Get it right, church. Because it is your responsibility to show the world the power of the gospel that I just laid out in the first 11 chapters of Romans. So how do we do it? Number one, when it comes to non-essentials, we have to walk in love. Now, that seems so basic. Uh, Did you hear what I just said? I guess it's written above me. When it comes to non-essentials, walk in love. And yet, friends, that's not what we've done. If you look, and we've quoted this numerous times, if you look at the statistics around um, the church today, what you see is... Uh, less than 5% of churches, evangelical churches in our country, have a minority group present in their body that consists of 20% of their total body. And what that means is, is less than 5% of our churches are multi-ethnic. And what that means is, is that 95 to 98% of our churches, evangelical, Bible-believing churches have said, because of the color of our skin... But I think it runs so much deeper than that. Because of the cultures that we represent, we can't do life together. Our cultural perspectives and our cultural practices are too big for the gospel to really overcome. And Paul says, shame on you, church. Shame on you. Because... Here's what happens when we go out and we look for a church that fits us. When we go out and we try to find a church that makes us feel good, we love that music, oh, that worship, we love the, I mean, look how people were dressed, they know how to dress, coat and ties, or blue jeans and t-shirts, or man, they have coffee and you can bring it in here. They don't, you know, they know that, that, you know, this is not I mean, whatever it is. Or look, you know, that church now they've got it right because look at their parties. They have they have beer and wine at their parties. Or look at this church, they don't have beer and wine, so that that's really the way to do it. I mean, all these little things, we find a church that fits us and minimizes the gospel of Jesus Christ in the process. Paul says, don't do that. Why? Because it's a gospel issue. When I became a Christian, um, I was in an all-white, fairly wealthy church. You had people with money and you had people with more money, but you didn't have people with no money, except maybe for Rachel and myself. We had just we, we were just married, newly married, and uh, we did not have excuse me for being crass, a pot to piss in. I mean, literally. Our budget was $35 a week for groceries, and I don't know how Rachel fed us, but she did it. Well, my parents had, uh, they bought me a brand-new sport coat, plaid sport coat and blue slacks, I still remember it, and a brand-new tie, and I looked really good in it. Well, I was invited to a wedding at that church, and it was a 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock Saturday morning wedding. Well, I showed up in my plaid coat, my brand-new plaid coat, my brand-new blue slacks, and I was the only man there who was not wearing a light gray suit. And as soon as I walked in, I thought, I missed the memo. I mean, who sent that email out? Um, and I was paranoid, but, I, you know, everything in me was like, Richard, go back home and change. But I thought, you know what? No, I'm not letting these people get to me. And what did I do? I sat there letting those people get to me the entire morning. I went to the reception and I was thinking by that time, you know, not many people were talking to me. People that typically talked to me weren't even talking to me. And I was getting a little paranoid, but then I thought, no, it's probably, it's probably just me and I feel insecure. And then somebody came up to me and said, nice sport coat. And I thought, I don't think that was a compliment. Now, we look at something as small as that. But I want you to know that in that Christian culture, that was real. And you can find just as petty rules in anybody. We all carry them. Yeah. You need to find a church that has a good sound system and a good room. That's what you need to find. This room is about to drive us crazy. And it's a gospel issue. Uh, thank you, God, for this room. I think we need to have a prayer time for this uh, w- wonderful marble-filled room that's uh, not fit for sound, but where in the world was I? Oh, yeah. <laughs> this is a gospel issue because we are all trying to find something to make us feel good before God. God. In addition to Jesus, and it's typically something as small as what we wear, what we eat or don't eat, and what we drink or don't drink. And you see, what Paul is saying is, don't find another church when you find people in the church that disagree with you on these non-essentials, but be the church. He says, the gospel is so big, Jesus is so large that it should overshadow your personal convictions to to have to want to conform everybody around you into the box in which you live in. He says, look, don't allow the smallest things to divide you because when you do that, what you're proving is you don't think there's anything bigger to unite you. When we let the smallest things divide us, what we're saying is Jesus is not big enough to unite us over these issues. And Paul says, He is, He is, He is. Did you not hear everything I've said in the first 11 chapters? Go back and meditate on them. Because all I was saying is Jesus is huge and you are small. And yet you are loved and chosen and delighted in by God Himself. And so you don't have to go and try to make yourself right. The gospel is power to not have to be right. You hear me? The gospel is power to not have to be right. Why? Because you have been made right through the work of another and His name is Jesus. The primary focus of the first 11 chapters of Romans is this it is answering this question how does one who, you know, is sinful in every way, who is impacted by sin in every way, how does that person stand righteous in the sight of a holy God? Well, it is not through works. It is apart from law, and it's through faith in the finished work of Jesus. You are made righteous, not through what you do or don't do, but by what Jesus did and didn't do you are made righteous you are presented to the father already through faith through the person of jesus christ it's called imputed righteousness it's been his righteousness the righteousness of jesus has been credited to your account and therefore you don't have to prove a better righteousness it doesn't get any better than that And so Paul says in verse 13, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. You see, what Paul is doing is he's not just calling us to get along, but he's calling us to love. And the way we love is by saying, I'm going to treat your perspective on this issue as more important than my perspective on this issue. And if we all do that, there's a community of humility and love. And here's the point. Look at verses 21 through 23, chapter 14. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because he's eating not from faith. And here it is. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Here's what Paul is saying. He's saying... That we are not just not only to um that, that we basically have to come and we've got to get a conviction. We've got to come and decide what is right or wrong for us to do and then not put it on anybody else, but in fact live as if we think other people's convictions are better than ours. That's crazy. Because what is at stake is this. It is to tempt somebody to do something that will defy their conscience and defile their conscience. Because here's what is at the root of our desire to make others conform to our opinions about non-essential things. What is at the root of it is this. We want to be and have the power of Jesus. See, if I can get people to agree with all of my convictions, then I feel better about me. And when I have to get everybody to agree with my conviction about small essentials, I am proving that I am not resting in Jesus' opinion of me and the Father's opinion of me, but I've got to go create it. I've got to go find somebody who I can make close to me who will agree with me that will make me feel good about me and it's all about me. And what Paul is saying is that is counter to the gospel. You don't need the approval of anybody, so stop trying to make disciples of your non-essential opinions and convictions. But rest in Christ and understand what He has done for you. See, what the most powerful thing in the world is not necessarily an argument, but a sneer. We've talked about this in Genesis 3. The way that the devil got Eve to eat the forbidden fruit was he, he he looked at her with a sneer and he said, did God really say? Come on. You really going to believe that? And you see, that's what we do in these little issues. Oh, come on. I mean, what? You're not as mature as I am and able to have a drink in public? Are you really? I mean, are you going to be really that... Ins- I mean, that's what we do. And what we've done is we've caused somebody not to walk by faith in Christ, but to walk by faith in us, and we've defiled their conscience. Well, here's the qualification. Paul is not telling us to not offend legalists or Pharisees. This is what I see a lot in the church today um, on this issue, I see one extreme is arrogance. I don't care what anybody thinks because this is my conviction, and Paul is clearly saying, "Stop it, that's wrong." But here's the other extreme: it's saying, "You know, I don't want to, I don't want to offend anybody, um, you know, because I, what we're really saying is, I don't want them to look down on me." But if you look at the life of Jesus, you see that he was more than willing. To offend legalists and Pharisees, you remember one day he encountered a bunch of, uh, of Pharisees who thought it was wrong to heal on the Sabbath. And what did Jesus do? He made sure they were watching, and then he healed on the Sabbath. He thought the, the, the Pharisees thought that it was wrong to eat, uh, you know, to harvest food on the Sabbath. What did he, what did he do? He took his disciples into a field and said, "Let's start picking some wheat and eating." Because he wanted the Pharisees to understand that their acceptance before God was not based on what they did or didn't do and the non-essential things, but on who they are in Christ. And so he's not saying don't oppose legalism and Pharisaism in the church. But what he is saying that when it comes to Christian community and when you have a body that is uplifting Christ and the gospel is clear and everyone knows my salvation rests on Christ and Christ alone, then you better be careful how you're eating and drinking and and observing days and dressing and all the other things. You've gotta, you've gotta be aware of those around you and live more for them than for yourself. That's what Paul is saying. And then secondly, We've got to understand that God is at work and He's not finished with any of us. I'm reading the the book called The Little Way of Ruthie Lemming. I don't know if anybody's read that. I know Whitney has. She's the one that told me about the book. It's a beautiful little story. uh, The Little Way of Ruthie Lemming by Rod Dreher. And it's really about Rod Dreher, the, the author, who grew up in this small town of Louisiana, a very rural setting. And uh, in a rural setting like that, in Louisiana especially in the south, you have people that are hunting and fishing all the time and driving big trucks. And uh, he was not a hunter-gatherer kind of guy. He was more of a reader-writer kind of guy. And so he felt out of place in that small town. And as soon as he graduates high school, he gets out of that small town as fast as he possibly can. But something happens to him. He he keeps coming back for visits, and I'm not going to tell you why he keeps coming back necessarily. It's to see his family, uh, for the most part. But as he comes back, that community is, accepts and loves him, and what he sees is a bond in that community unlike anything he sees in New York or Philadelphia or Chicago or any of the other places that he goes as, as a writer, um, which was his profession. And so God starts doing a work in his life, and it really is God. I mean, he, he is becomes a believer. And you see God working. And he ends up moving back to the small town, and he does so because God shows him the power and the strength of love and bond in a community. But here's the thing that's, that strikes me. What I see in that little small town was a, a people who were no doubt being judged by Rod Dreher as he was growing up. He had this air of, I'm better than this place and I'm better than these people. But they loved him ferociously. And because they loved him ferociously, they ended up winning him back to the small town. And that's exactly what Christ has called us to do. You see, we have to understand that God is at work. It's what He majors in. It is not our job to change people. You and I can change no one. I have never changed anyone with all the sermons that I've preached. The only one that gets credit for anybody's life that's ever been changed in a small way or a huge way is the Holy Spirit, God Himself, and not me. And do you realize that as you relate to people around you that you don't have the power and in fact, God has not called you to change those around you. He's called you to be something, not force necessarily being you on other people. But the important point here is that God is at work. Look at verses 15 and 20 in chapter 14. Paul says this, For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love by what you eat. And then he says this, Do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. And then verse 20, Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Paul is calling us to be careful not to destroy the work of God or the work that God is doing in the lives of others. God is at work. I think we forget this. We forget that other people are God's projects and not us. And you say, well, how in the world can we do this? Namely, by the gospel. (laughs) The gospel says this, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace. So we are justified not being right and not by making other people as right as we think we are. But we are justified through the righteousness of Christ. And the only goodness that we have before God is the goodness that has been imputed to us through Christ. And therefore, we have to rely on that. Paul has also told us in Romans 3, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so, therefore, our identity as Christians is is twofold. I am a sinner worse than I ever allow myself to believe. And yet, and the bridge is the cross, I am more loved and accepted in Christ than I've ever dared to hope. And it's not this thing or this thing. It's these things all the time. Luther referred to it as as simul justice et peccator. It's, It's we are both sinful and righteous at the same time in Christ. And when you believe that, there is a distinct humility about you to the point that you know your sin to the point that you're not going to force somebody else to take your opinions about things, and yet you're boasting in Christ so much that you want them to love Him and to boast in Christ. And so how does a church come together with differing opinions and yet get along? It's by making much of Jesus. And the question personally for us in this room today is, are you making much of Jesus? Is He the essence of your cope and your Christianity? Is He the, the, the drumbeat that you move to day in and day out? Is He the one that you worship with heart, mind, soul, and strength? Is Jesus the one that has captivated your life? Is He the one that you want to please with every thought, with every action, and in everything that you do? If not and when not, you become a danger to this body. Because when Jesus is not the biggest thing in your life, something else is going to be. And it's typically your performance before the law. And you will find yourself making people fit into the categories that you have in your own mind and heart. Jesus said this in Matthew 7, You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. You see, the way that we destroy the work of God in somebody else is we, by our words or our actions or our looks draw them away from wanting to love Christ with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength, but maybe preaching a little bit of Jesus, but hey, if you're a real Christian, then you'll get in line with the rest of us here at Downtown Church. Friends, this is why we have always said Downtown Church must be a gospel-driven, kingdom-saturated, multi-ethnic, multi-class church. Because the minute that we stop doing that, we become a multi-class, multi-ethnic church that gives a nod to Jesus. But what we're really telling people is, when you get it right like us, you'll be multi-class, multi-ethnic. You see, we've got to preach Christ and Him crucified, and that alone. And the implications of that must filter down among us. And let God do His work in us. And then thirdly, God gives us strength to bear the weakness of others. The reason that God gives us the gospel is not only to save us and not only to give us eternal hope, but a primary reason that we have the gospel is so that we can be- to grow in such a way and mature in such a way that, that, that we put others before ourselves you want to know where the gospel is taking you? Do you want to know what the Lord's will is for you in your life? It's for you to die and Christ to be exalted in the lives of those around you. I mean, I don't care what you do. I don't care what your profession is. I don't care how much money you have, the color of your skin. That is what God is doing in the world. He's creating this radical new community of love. This past week, we got a great illustration of this. And I'm not going to bore you with all the details. It's very um, very relevant and exciting for uh, for pastor types and maybe some of you. But uh, there's a group called the Gospel Coalition. It's made up of guys like uh, Tim Keller and Donald Carson and John Piper and uh, a bunch of those guys. And basically they come together and produce papers and stuff and, and distribute them out, send them out. Uh, you can like them on Facebook, Gospel Coalition, and so forth. Well, before this past couple of weeks, there was a man, uh, pastor in the Gospel Coalition. His name is Tulian Chavidian. I've quoted him numerous times. I love his writing, One Way Love. Uh, his incredible books had a huge influence on me. Well, Tulian Chavidian and, and the Gospel Coalition got crosswise, and, and basically they, um, they kicked him out. Um, he may have agreed to step back, but it was a conflict. Well, there was all this bantering back and forth on Facebook, and it was very public. Yesterday, Tulane Chavidian came out with a statement. And it's entitled, Reflections on My Breakup with the Gospel Coalition. And I just want to read the majority of it to you, because this is a perfect illustration of how we should act inside the church. He says this, the public breakup between the Gospel Coalition and me weighs heavy on my heart. And I want to say just a few things about, about it now that I've had some time to reflect. Number one, I want to say that I'm sorry. I'm sorry for saying things in my own defense. One of the things that the Gospel frees you to do is to never have to bear the burden of defending yourself. Defending the Gospel is one thing. But when a defense of the gospel becomes a defense of yourself, you've slipped slipped back under, quote, a yoke of slavery, end quote. I slipped last week. I'm an emotional guy. And in my highly charged emotional state, I said some things in haste, both publicly and privately, that I regret. I never want anything I say to be a distraction from the mind-blowing good news of the gospel. And last week I did. I got in the way. When you feel the need to respond to criticism, it reveals how much you've built your identity on being right. See, that's what we're talking about. I'm an idolater, and that came out last week. Because Jesus won for you, you're free to lose. And last week, I fought to win. I'm sorry you had to see that. Lord, have mercy. Number two, I want everyone to know just how much I absolutely love and adore my friend Tim Keller. Tim is traveling, but we've been in touch and are planning to talk this upcoming week. We are both committed to one another and the friendship we've enjoyed for many years. There are few people on this planet that I hold in higher esteem than Tim. He knows that. I love him. He's been a mentor and older brother to me for a long time, and both he and Kathy have been near and dear to Kim and me. The thought that I said anything at all that would hurt Tim or call anything about him into question makes me both sad and sick. I'm really sorry about that. Please forgive me. Third, I want you to know that while Christians have differences on a wide variety of issues, I believe that the world is big enough and the harvest is ripe enough for well-meaning brothers and sisters to agree to disagree. The world desperately needs to see Christians standing side by side and back to back loving one another. And last week, I found myself standing face-to-face with some Christians in a posture of non-love. I'm really sorry about that. As both Liberate and the Gospel Coalition move forward, I want people to know that while there may be differences, we're on the same team. Folks, this is huge. The saddest thing about all this, listen, because of the public visibility of those involved, this conflict gained a lot of attention. The reason this grieves me so deeply is because the Bible says, and I should say in Romans 14 and 15, that God wants the way Christians love one another to be a visual model of the way God loves us. He wants us, in other words, to live our lives together in such a way that we demonstrate the good news of reconciliation before the watching world. He wants us to be loving and patient and forbearing and deferential and, um, and to each other, deferential to each other. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. I'm guilty, we're all guilty, of saying things and thinking things and doing things and failing to say and think and do things that exhibit the kind of treatment we received in the person and work of Jesus. While you were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And I could go on. The gospel ignites strength in us to shut our mouth. (laughs) Do you want to know what Christian maturity looks like? It looks like Jesus. Listen to Isaiah 53, 7. He who was oppressed and he who was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Paul says in 15, verse 7, "...we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not please ourselves." And I want you to know that the difference between strong and weak is not necessarily the conviction that you hold, but the way you hold your conviction. Let me say that again. The strong and the weak is not so much the conviction that you hold, but how you hold your conviction." And what Paul is saying is, is that the gospel should be so large to you, you should be so mature and grown up in Christ, understanding the depth of His grace for you, that you shut your mouth and you love somebody that disagrees with you. And you do it not just once, but you do it over and over and over and over and over again until you've won your enemy. Until you've won the one that disagrees with you. Because that's precisely what God has done for you in Christ. How beautiful is that, dear friends? What I love about this church is that even among the leadership, we have real differences of opinions about the Scriptures and what the Scriptures teach, about some non-essential stuff. But nobody in this room knows anything about that. And nobody ever will, I pray. Why? Why? Because Jesus is so much bigger. Well, how do we do this? How do we live in, in such harmony with one another as Paul says? Verse 7 is the key. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Let me say it again. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. You might want to Photoshop your community, but what God in His infinite wisdom is saying is this. The thing that's going to shout my glory among the nations is a people that radically disagree about some important but non-essential things in the church. And yet their love for me is so thick and so strong that nobody even knows the differences that, that exist in the room. Oh, the only way to do that is to understand that Jesus' mouth is shut up against you this morning. Do you realize the way to get a conviction is to go off and be alone with Christ and beg Him to give Him His opinion for you? God demonstrates this for us. The only way that I can come up with a personal conviction is by going to His Word and studying, getting alone with God and saying, "Okay, God, where do I come down on this? Would you help me? Please help me. I'm not hearing you. Please, God, please. Did I hear you right? I mean, God is not that opinionated. He, he makes us come to Him and pull it out of Him. So may we be that kind of church that says, I love you enough not to force my opinion on these things on you. Because I know that Jesus is supreme. Because He welcomes me and He welcomes you in the same manner. Have you been welcomed by Jesus Christ? If so, dear friends, then it shows in the way you treat others and it shows in your humility So may we lift Jesus high in our hearts, recognizing our sin, but coming to Him by faith. That's the message of these tables. So may we prepare our heart to go to them today. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for the beauty of the cross. Thank you for the beauty of the gospel that is so powerful and so real that, that we don't have to be right, that we can dis, be, we can disagree and we can be disagreed with. And yet we can love and accept and live in unity. Help downtown church to be that kind of church. Convict us of our pride and our arrogance and our self-righteousness. And may we drink in grace this morning that we might walk away willing to love those that we thought maybe we couldn't before we walk in this door today. And We pray this for the glory of Christ. Amen.